0: hello this is William Fink and this is Christagenia internet radio today is Friday March 8th 2019 praise Yahweh the God of Israel and thank you for listening this evening we are actually going to get back to our commentary on the Gospel of John and present part 16 which is subtitled the son of man we will finally complete John chapter 5 this evening. Here we shall once again continue our commentary on the Gospel of John, resuming with our presentation of John chapter 5 where we had left off three weeks ago. The theme where we had left off with for our last presentation was the Sabbaths of God, but it may have been called the Sabbath of God, singular. That is because Yahweh God is still in his own day of rest as Paul of Tarsus had explained in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 where he informs us that the children of God still have an opportunity to enter into his rest in the days of Joshua with the ancient Israelites and today in Joshua Christ. However where Joshua Christ had attested that my father labors until now and I labor, it becomes apparent that Yahweh has been compelled to occupy himself during his Sabbath day's rest by helping his people Israel and the greater Adamic race as a whole. For that reason, Joshua Christ had asserted that he had a moral compulsion to heal his people on the Sabbath. For example, where he said, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 3, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? Therefore, all Christians should follow his example. Furthermore, We had discussed the fact that under the Old Covenant, it was necessary for the Levites to work on the Sabbaths in their service to the people of God, making sacrifices and performing other rituals on their behalf, or acting as porters, singers, or musicians in the temple, or conducting the readings of the scriptures throughout the assemblies so the priest is one who serves Yahweh God by serving the people of God we also hope to have demonstrated from the scriptures that there can be no true Sabbath without obedience to God throughout the rest of the week the children of Israel who have returned to Yahweh in Christ are a nation of priests, as Peter explained in his first epistle, that you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, so that you should proclaim the virtues for which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light. Christians should also seek to keep his commandments, as he had commanded. So if they truly seek to be obedient, only then may they enjoy proper Sabbaths. Enjoying proper Sabbaths, being a nation of priests, they should spend their Sabbaths in service to their people. The original sense of the Greek word, liturgus, is a public servant. The capacity in which he functioned was a liturgia, and this is the word from which we had the English word liturgy now the churches have corrupted the original meaning of the term but originally a liturgus was someone who freely performed a service to the public that is what liturgy really means in ancient Athens each notable or wealthy citizen was called on at least once a year to perform a service for the public good, whether it was the building of a ship for the navy, or the production of a play for a festival, or even some lesser deed for those who were not so rich. The true Christian liturgy is to freely serve one's people for their edification, so being obedient to Yahweh God and seeking to help one's brethren one's fellow Christian brethren, that is the way that Christians should spend their Sabbaths, as that was the example of Christ. A man can spend his Sabbath days at rest, and doing that he may justify himself, but seeking to serve his people, he makes sacrifices on behalf of them and seeks to edify them, where in a sense he justifies them, believing that they are worthy of his efforts. Serving Yahweh on the Sabbath, by serving one's people, as Paul of Tarsus had asked in Romans chapter 14, who are you to be judging another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he shall stand. Indeed, the prince is able to establish him. While one distinguishes a day contrary to another day, Yet another distinguishes every day. Each in his own mind must be fully assured. Continuing with our examination of John chapter 5, there is something even more significant which is revealed in this dialogue offered by Christ to his adversaries, where he is claiming to have received from God himself the power of life and death, and the authority to judge men. So, in our last presentation, we have already commented on verses 21 through 25, where Christ had said, For just as the Father raises and makes the dead to live, thusly also the Son makes live whom he wishes. For neither does the Father judge anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father he not honoring the Son, would not honor the Father who has sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, that he hearing my word and believing in he who has sent me, has eternal life and does not come to judgment, but has passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, that the hour comes and is now, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of Yahweh, and those hearing shall live. There is a type for certain aspects of this dialogue of Christ, which is found in the writings of Ezekiel. In each of Ezekiel chapters 20, 22, and 23, the prophet himself was addressed by Yahweh, who described to him certain of the sins of the children of Israel, and asked, Wilt thou judge them, son of man? Wilt thou judge them?" So we see that Yahweh called the prophet after the formula son of man and asked him if he would judge the people. But in each instance it is Yahweh himself who declared that he would judge the people for their sins. So in the end the prophet could only announce to the people both their sins and the message of their impending judgment. However, here there is something quite different. Here Christ has proclaimed that now it is He who would judge the people and not the Father. Doing this, He must be asserting that He is the promised Son of the Psalms, where we read in the second Psalm, I will declare the decree, Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son, This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here, in the face of his enemies, Christ has proclaimed for himself to be the son of which David had spoken he who would be the ultimate judge of the nations. This is again declared in the 110th Psalm, and Christ himself had informed us elsewhere in the Gospel that this passage indeed refers to the Messiah. The Lord said, or Yahweh said, unto my Lord, or the word Adon, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Yahweh has sworn and will not repent, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand, Adon, shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. Depicting what we see prophesied in Revelation chapter 19. The impending judgment of all of the enemies of Yahweh is and shall be fulfilled in Yahshua Christ, who is the ultimate Son of Man. But in spite of the fact that here Christ has asserted that the judgment of the Father has been given to him, it was not his purpose to sit as judge of men in the course of his earthly ministry. So we may read where he said in John chapter 8, Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came, and whither I go. But you cannot tell whence I come, and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh. I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I in the Father that has sent me. The matters of judgment prophesied for the Messiah are reserved by Christ himself in his revelation, as well as in certain of his parables, where he explained how he shall execute that judgment. This ongoing, and in many aspects, impending judgment, is and shall be fulfilled in Yahshua Christ who, as we said, is the ultimate Son of Man. Now Joshua Christ continues with his rather bold assertions from verse 26, where we left off three weeks ago. For just as the Father has life in himself, thusly also he has given the Son to have life in himself. John had, in part, opened his gospel with the words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It is evident in the Genesis account of creation that Yahweh God is the source of life, and as He created man, He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. So only God has life in Himself. Man may have man may have life breathed into him, but man cannot of his own power perpetuate life or transmit that life into others, outside of the natural reproduction process, which was already created by God. However, while Christ says here, that thusly also he has given the Son to have life in himself, that must be because the Son is one with the Father, that Christ is God come as a man. David also wrote, in the 143rd Psalm that in thy sight shall no living man be justified a concept which Paul repeated in chapter 3 of his epistle to the Romans and therefore Christ must be more than merely a living man thus we read in Isaiah chapter 54 for thy maker is thine husband Yahweh of hosts is his name and thy Redeemer the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called, then again in Isaiah chapter 59, and the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith Yahweh. Yahshua Christ is that Redeemer, being the bridegroom, he is the husband, and he must also be Yahweh of hosts, as Yahweh promised to betroth Israel to himself forever in Hosea chapter 2. Later in the Gospel of John, there is record that Yahshua informed his disciples that he is God in no uncertain terms. As we have already seen in the Psalms, Yahweh God would give to a particular son the authority to make judgment, and here Yahshua Christ is proclaiming that he is that son. Having life in himself, he must also be God. And later, in the revelation of Christ, we see that Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. From the beginning of creation, Yahweh must have planned to take a part in his own creation, and therefore come as one of his own children. When Christ himself cited the 110th Psalm, In reference to himself, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 20, he asked, Therefore David calls him Lord, yet how is he his son? If the Messiah is both David's Lord and David's son, then the Messiah must be Yahweh God, who is the origin of life from the beginning. Yahweh incarnate is God and at the same time he is the son of God being one of his own creation for the same reason he is described in Isaiah chapter 11 as a branch from the root of Jesse David's father and in the revelation as the root and offspring of David Yahweh being the father of Adam as it states in Luke chapter 3 is the root of David and the root of the entire race Yahshua Christ must be Yahweh incarnate as a man. So now where he reasserts his authority to judge man he also refers to himself in another fashion and he has given authority to him to make judgment because he is the son of man christ had referred to the son of man three times earlier in john in chapter one speaking to his disciples and twice in chapter three speaking to nicodemus and while on each occasion he was speaking of himself the reference was not quite as explicit as it seems to be here it is recorded throughout all of the other gospels where Christ had frequently referred to himself as the Son of Man, 30 times alone, in the Gospel of Matthew. Only 12, I believe, in John. By itself, there is nothing which is apparently special about the label Son of Man. It is used in the book of Numbers, in Job, and in the Psalms, as a reference to the mortal aspect of man. For instance, in Psalm 146, where we read, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. And where the mortality of man is further lamented and contrasted, in that psalm, to the eternal quality of God. This we also see where the phrase appears in Isaiah chapter 51, I, even I, am he that comforts you. Who art thou, that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die, and of the Son of man, which shall be made as grass, and forgets Yahweh thy Maker, that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? The phrase appears elsewhere in Isaiah, a few times in Jeremiah, and perhaps 93 times in Ezekiel, where it is usually attributed to Yahweh as an address to the prophet himself. 93 times, I believe, if I counted correctly, Yahweh calls Ezekiel, thou son of man, or O son of man. The portrayal of the mortal aspect of man, which the phrase is often used to convey, is also apparent in Hebrews chapter 2, where Paul was quoting from the 8th Psalm, and had written, rather one has testified, saying somewhere, meaning in that Psalm number 8, what is man, that you would be mindful of him, or a son of man, that you would watch over him, there is no definite article in that passage of hebrews so the phrase should properly properly be read in English as a son of man likewise it appears once in that same fashion in Daniel chapter 8 where Daniel had a vision and he was addressed by an angel as a son of man but where Christ uses it in reference to himself there is always a definite article and he calls himself the son of man in that fashion as it is recorded throughout all four gospels with one exception this occurrence here in John five twenty-seven, where the article does not appear in Greek although our translation included it here Christ actually may have only said because he is a son of man ostensibly If all of the children of Israel were obedient to Yahweh, they should all be judges of his creation. As we read in the 82nd Psalm, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? I am persuaded, and this shall be discussed at greater length, Yahweh willing, later in this commentary on the Gospel of John, that this passage was fulfilled in the ministry of Christ, and it could be related to the original commission of Adam to tread upon all of the other creatures of creation, to have dominion over all of the other creatures of creation. Paul of Tarsus also says, in chapter 6 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, pertaining to the Christians of the assembly of Corinth, Know ye not that we shall judge angels, how much more things that pertain to this life? The term son of man appears again in Daniel chapter 7, where it is used to refer to a certain man, who would ultimately judge the nations. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory, and the kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. But even in Daniel 7, where we see the phrase, the son of man, properly it is a son of man, since in the Hebrew, there is no definite article. And the word man isn't even from Adam, it's from the Chaldean form, Enash a form of the Hebrew word Enosh, which refers to a man in the mortal sense. But the important point here is a prophecy that one who is like a son of man, but who actually came from heaven, would be given his own kingdom and judgment over all people, nations, and languages. In that same sense, describing a similar figure, the phrase son of man appears frequently in certain sections of the writings now known as One Enoch collectively, as part of One Enoch, in a section subtitled The Parables, in Charles's edition. Charles also has an appendix devoted to the subject. But so far as I have seen, the Enoch literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls is wanting that particular section of the Ethiopic one Enoch, so I won't quote it here, not having veracity of its canonicity, but in any event, Joshua Christ is that son of man who is spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, and when he appeared, he called himself the son of man. So ostensibly, any son of Adam can be called a son of man and there is nothing special about the term but if God himself employs that same term to refer to himself it is indeed special on that occasion it is a sign of the humility of God that he would choose to live a humble life on earth as one of his own creation and subject himself to that same mortality for which the term was so often used as a reference all in the service of his people now speaking of the power of life which he had from God Christ continues do not be astonished at this because the hour comes in which all those in the tombs shall hear his voice, and they shall go forth." And we will leave it right there in the middle of verse 29. Christ had already said in verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you that the hour comes and is now when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of Yahweh, and those hearing shall live. In relation to this, we discussed the first epistle of Peter, where in chapters 3 and 4 he explained that Christ for this cause preached also to them that are dead that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the spirit and there we see that judgment is not necessary damnation which we will also discuss again shortly as we alluded when we discussed verse 25 in our last presentation the spirits of the dead were imagined to have been captives in a prison being alienated from god so there is an apparent double meaning in isaiah chapter 61 where we read a passage that cite, that christ himself had also cited in reference to himself as it is recorded in luke chapter 4 and in Isaiah 61 we read the spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound those who were captives in prison could refer to those pagan Israelites of the captivities who were prophesied to be reconciled to Yahweh in Christ. The truth would make them free. However, Peter more explicitly applied the concept to those who had died, even to those who had died in the flood of Noah, who were alienated from Yahweh and who were in need of that same reconciliation. There was a token resurrection recorded in Matthew chapter 27. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, as he hung on a cross. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain, from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and the bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. This seems to be a token fulfillment of prophecy such as that which is found in Isaiah chapter 26. Thy dead men shall live, together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. But the event recorded in Matthew can only be a symbolic Deposit, as Paul often called it, of the ultimate resurrection described by, Yah- by I'm sorry, of the ultimate resurrection described by Paul of Tarsus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm reading ahead of myself. Until then, the spirits of the dead must be gathered to Yahweh, as Christ Himself said to His disciples speaking of the time of his own departure in John chapter 15 little children yet a little while I am with you ye shall seek me and as I said unto the Jews or the Judeans whither I go you cannot come so now I say to you then they questioned him and a few verses later we read Simon Peter said unto him Lord "'Whither goest thou?' or, "'Where are you going?' Jesus answered him, "'Where I go? "'You cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards.'" So where Christ, speaking of the dead, said at the beginning of the verse, "'And they shall go forth,' he must not have meant that they shall go forth in this earthly realm, in this earthly existence, but only spoke of where they shall go, and where Peter would later follow, evidently after his own earthly death. As Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I believe that's in maybe Second Corinthians chapter 7, if I had to guess. Now, Joshua continues in verse 29, and I will add that last statement to my notes later on those having done good things to a resurrection of life, but those having practiced wicked things to a resurrection of judgment. Similarly, we may read in Daniel chapter 12, in reference to the promised resurrection, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The King James Version reads the end of verse 29 to say that some will arise in a resurrection of damnation rather than judgment. However, the word word is krisis, which is judgment. Whether it be good or bad, a krisis is only a judicial decision, whether it be for or against anyone in particular and if there is mercy in judgment as the children of Israel have been promised mercy then judgment does not necessarily mean damnation or condemnation the entire purpose of a Messiah was an expression of Yahweh's mercy upon the children of Israel so that they may be reconciled to him and we read in Luke chapter 1, in reference to the promised Messiah, that he has helped, or hopen his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. This concept of mercy and judgment is expressed consistently throughout the scriptures. Yet there are always certain men who voice objections to the promises of eternal life, which are extended even to sinners. As Yahweh said in Isaiah chapter 28, in another clearly messianic prophecy, Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies. And the water shall overflow the hiding place, and your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand, when the overflowing scourge shall pass through. Then shall ye be trodden down by it. Yahweh promised mercy to the children of Israel, and mercy they shall receive even in spite of themselves. So Paul of Tarsus speaks of the mercy promised in the coming judgment, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Now if any man build upon this foundation, meaning Christ, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is if any man's work abide which he has built thereupon he shall receive a reward if any man's work shall be burned he shall suffer loss but he himself shall be saved yet so is by fire now we may speculate as we often have in the past that Paul's sinner with a lack of reward is congruous to those whom Daniel described as being resurrected to shame and everlasting content. The concept of everlasting content is, after all, everlasting. We have equated the two in the past and it does not seem unreasonable. Some of these men, but not necessarily all of them, will be among those who, having practiced wicked things, would ultimately go forth to a resurrection of judgment. But that does not necessarily mean that they face absolute condemnation or destruction in the lake of fire. As Christ himself said earlier, one who repents and hears him and believes in this life, ostensibly also keeping his commandments as he himself has commanded in his word, already has eternal life and does not come to judgment but is passed from death into life in reference to this same thing paul had said in first timothy chapter five that some men's sins are opened beforehand going before to judgment those are the people arising to the judgment of life to the resurrection of life and some men they follow after, and those men face judgment, because they haven't repented of their sins in this world. Now Christ once again appeals to Yahweh God as the source of his proclaimed authority. In verse 30 of John chapter 5, I am not able to do anything, or literally nothing, by myself just as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of he, or the majority text has the will of the Father, which we will see in the King James Version, but the will of he who has sent me. In his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul of Tarsus cited the 40th Psalm in reference to Joshua Christ here we will cite a little more of the psalm than paul had in order to also illustrate the mercy of yahweh god as the purpose of as well as the purpose of christ in relation to the will of god and we'll read from verse 7 then i said lo i come in the volume or in the chapter of the book it is written of me i delight to do thy will O my God, yea, Thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Yahweh, Thou knowest. I have not hid Thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared Thy faithfulness and Thy salvation. I have not concealed Thy loving-kindness and Thy truth from the great congregation. Withhold thou not thy tender mercies from me, O Yahweh. Let thy loving kindnesses and thy truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me, so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. O Yahweh, make haste to help me. So judgment comes with mercy. And resurrection is made possible through the mercy of God. Now, Christ speaks concerning his testimony. If I should give testimony concerning myself, my testimony is not true it is another who is testifying concerning me and I know that the testimony is true which he testifies concerning me now some manuscripts have you know which is quite odd and some later copies have we know you sent to John or Johannes and he testified to the truth where Christ had said you sent to John We see in John chapter 1 where John had testified of Christ to those who came to examine him, that they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And among other things John said to them, that I baptize with water, but there stands one among you, whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me. Whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. Where he was speaking of Joshua Christ. So this is the testimony to which Christ refers. But then regarding himself, he says, Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I speak these things in order that you may be preserved. Not all of the Pharisees which opposed Christ were Edomites or bastards. Many were of true Israel, but they were caught up. They were caught up in the party politics and the false doctrines of the times. Much like we see in our own churches and centers of government today. Christ knew who they were, as the apostle testified in John chapter 2, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. While only Yahweh God can profess to be able to know the hearts of men, Once again, Christ must be God incarnate, as he had that same ability, as Christ said in chapter 2 of his revelation, All the churches shall know that I am he who searches the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Later, in John chapter 12, we see that many of the Pharisees, although they continued in the party politics of Judea did indeed believe Christ, but would not admit it. There we read from verse 42. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. The party politics prevailed. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God we've already discussed the fact that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were among those of this group as John informs us elsewhere in his gospel for instance in John 19.38 he says that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple for fear of the Jews where Christ had said in order that you may be preserved The primary purpose of the Gospel is to call men to obedience in Christ that they may be preserved in this world and withstand the trials of this world. The purpose of God and the desire of Christians is to see the Kingdom of Heaven established on earth. But the destruction of Judea was about to come as Christ had prophesied elsewhere, and those who turned to Christ avoided suffering in that judgment as the Romans put down the rebellions of the Jews. Now speaking further of John, he says, he was a lamp burning and shining, and you had desired for a while, or literally for an hour, but it's also just a short time, and you had desired for a while to rejoice in his light. We are not told precisely who Christ is addressing in this discourse, as John the Apostle referred to them only as Judeans earlier in his chapter, and he did not identify them any further. But John the Baptist, in spite of his having been slain by Herod, must have had a good report among the Pharisees. And according to the words of Christ here, many of them must have actually appreciated John, The later Judean historian, Flavius Josephus, who was also a Pharisee, wrote perhaps 50 years after the death of John, and he said the following in reference to him in his Antiquities, book 18, after describing how Herod had suffered a military defeat. Now some of the Judeans thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly, as a punishment of what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Judeans to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness toward one another, and piety toward God, and so to come to baptism, for that the washing with water would be acceptable to him, if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or the remission of some sins only but for the purification of the body supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness Josephus seems to be attributing the beliefs that some of the Pharisees had to John the Baptist now when many others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words. Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put into, put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise, thought it best by putting him to death, to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it would be too late and this certainly seems to be political spin on the part of Herod who probably didn't want to admit that it was a woman that put him up to it and his own lust for a woman his own niece who danced for him at his birthday which enticed him to do it josephus finishes accordingly he was sent as a prisoner out of herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the citadel i before mentioned and there was put to death now the judeans had an opinion that the destruction of this army was sent as a punishment upon herod and a mark of god's displeasure to him So while we see a slightly different perspective on the purpose of John the Baptist from the viewpoint of Josephus, it is nevertheless evident that he was respected among the Pharisees and that Christ had rightly said to them that you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light, as it reads in the King James Version. As a digression in part 5 of this commentary titled, The Focus of the Disciple, we discussed how John may have had the ability to lead an uprising against the rulers of Judea, but refrained in favor of fulfilling his God-given mission in life. Now Christ continues in reference to his own mission. But I have greater testimony than John, for the works which the Father gave to me in order that I shall complete them, those same works which I should do, testify concerning me that the Father sent me." These Judeans had wanted to kill Christ, simply because he had evidently healed a man on the Sabbath. But as we explained when we discussed the earlier portions of this chapter where that event was recorded, they seemed to have missed the point that if Christ was able to miraculously heal a man who had been crippled for so many years then the healing must have actually come from Yahweh. And if it came on a Sabbath, that also must have been the will of Yahweh. So in reality, the Judeans were in opposition to Yahweh. So Christ attests that the healing of the man was tantamount to a testimony on his behalf, which was directly from God. And the Father who has sent me, he testified concerning me. And you have not ever yet heard his voice, nor have you seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, because he whom he has sent, in him you do not believe. Believing in Christ, one acknowledges having heard the voice and having seen the form of Yahweh God, as Christ himself had later said to Philip in John chapter 14 have I been so long a time with you and yet thou hast not known me Philip he that has seen me has seen the Father and how sayest thou then show us the Father in other words how do you say that you've seen me reading the later verses of the second Psalm once again I will declare the decree Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten begotten thee, ask of me, and I shall give the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. In Exodus chapter 23 we read, Behold, I send an angel before thee, to keep thee in the way, and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Of course, that was in the short term. That is esteemed to be a prophecy of Joshua, the son of Nun, in the immediate sense, and of Joshua Christ in the transcendental sense. And we certainly agree that it is a messianic prophecy in that sense. Think about this, and this is extemporaneous, and I probably may not put it in my notes. The children of Israel were promised the place prepared in the land of Canaan and needed Joshua the son of Nun to lead them into it. But as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, I believe it is, David was told by Samuel that there was another place prepared for the children of Israel where they would go ultimately and from which they would move no more and they need another Joshua, Christ to lead them into that and ostensibly he has that's a different story again The Father testified of Christ through the lips of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 where it says, Yahweh thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him shall you hearken. When those words were spoken, Joshua the son of Nun was already a leader among the children of Israel. The Apostles had cited the same passage in Acts chapters 3 and 7, understanding that it had referred to Christ. So we read a little further on, in that same chapter of Deuteronomy, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto me, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass, that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. The works which Christ had performed proved by themselves that he was speaking in the name of Yahweh. And those who rejected him had the warning of the scriptures in the second psalm, kiss the son lest he be angry and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Those who did not put their trust in him were evidently not worthy to be blessed, and demonstrated it by their refusal to believe him. So Christ further tells them, You must examine the writings, because you suppose by them to have eternal life. And these are they which testify concerning me. Yet you do not wish to come to me in order that you would have life. And the Codex Beze Beze inserts the word eternal there once again. Of course, there are scriptures such as the Wisdom of Solomon, which explicitly state that the Adamic man has eternal life. But that can also be found in these so-called canonical scriptures, such as in Daniel chapter 12 concerning the resurrection, or in the 16th Psalm, where David had written, that for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. However, the first promise of such life is made with the condition in Genesis chapter 3 verse 23 where it says concerning Adam behold the man is become as one of us to know good and evil and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever the condition of course is to put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life in Revelation In chapter 2, Christ asserted for himself to be the steward of that tree of life, he that has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. However, it is also evident that Christ is the tree of life, as he told his disciples in John chapter 15 I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abides not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Christ being God incarnate, Rejecting Christ, one must reject God, and evidently did not belong to him in the first place. It's those strange slips, those bastard branches, which are cast into the fire. <coughs> Christ continues, And I would not receive an opinion from men, John chapter 5, verses 41 and 42, But I know you, that you do not have the love of Yahweh in yourselves. Verse 41 may just as literally be read, I would not receive honor from men, or in either case, I do not receive, since the present tense first person singular form of this verb is identical in the subjunctive and indicative moods. The Greek word doxa, Strong's number 1391, which is usually honor here in the Christian New Testament, and more often glory in the King James Version, is literally a notion, true or false, an expectation, an opinion, a judgment, the opinion which others have of one, estimation, reputation, credit, honor, or glory. That, according to the intermediate Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, I'm sorry, here in this context, and not talking about himself, but about those listening to him, opinion seems to fit the context better than honor. Evidently, Christ not receiving the opinions of men, he was not a slanderer or a gossiper, but instead had judged men by their fruits, by the result of their labors and their actions. Christians should also accept that model as an example for their own edification. When you start receiving the opinions of men and acting on them, without having proof yourself, you become a slanderer, a gossip, and they are grievous sins. Verse 43 I have come in the name of my Father, and you do not receive me. If perhaps another would come in his own name, him you would receive. Men often receive those who claim to be prophets or have special knowledge of their own accord, who are thereby coming in their own names. How Lindsay uh, there's a million new-age clowns that fit right into this category. Michael Brandenburg, Ryan Brandon, <laughs> even some of them call themselves identity Christians. I can't help myself sometimes. Men often receive those who claim to be prophets or have special knowledge of their own accord who are thereby coming in their own names. Later on in the book of Acts, Simon Magus was one such example of such a man. Unfortunately men also continue to accept such charlatans even after the prophecies and visions which they claim to have turn out to be false and it is evident that they fail. Anyone who continues to accept a man who has uttered false prophecies and vain visions is just as guilty as the false prophet no man prophecies truth without the inspiration of Yahweh and those who claim to have such inspiration had better be right on every single occasion in every single instance or they are liars. That's the test of a prophet. How are you able to believe an opinion being received from each other and the opinion from the one and only you do not seek? Now I'm sure the King James version here has the only God or something similar. After the phrase which is rendered here as one and only the Nestle-Aland Novum Testamentum Graece has the Greek word for God, without citing what manuscripts it relies upon for an authority, and attesting that the third-century papyri P sixty-six and P seventy-five and the codices Vaticanus and Washingtonensis which are two of the significant codices from the fourth and fifth centuries all want the word. Some of the earliest Latin manuscripts also want the word for God here. Therefore I was quite skeptical and I did not include it and I had rendered the word manos metaphorically as one and only rather than simply one or only. Now having access to the internet and the ability to check manuscripts myself for such anomalies, I can see that the word for God is found in this place in the codices Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus. However, I will refrain as yet from amending the text of the Christianian New Testament. I may do it later as I get time to check other manuscripts. In any event, Christ is telling his opponents that they are quick to believe each other's opinions, yet they reject the word of the only and true God we can still see that this is a prevailing attitude among people to this very day where so many are lazy indolent and dependent upon others and they would believe some man's opinions without actually studying the scriptures for themselves and discovering the greater reasons for believing God doing that they follow men according to their popularity or by how nice or how persuasive they are by how sweetly they talk or by how attractive or how successful they appear to be and not examining the truth of the scriptures for themselves they are always led down the road to hell for that Christ did not even have to judge them because by their actions they had already judged and convicted themselves. So he tells them, do not suppose that I shall accuse you before the Father. There is one who is accusing you, Moses, in whom you have hope. For if you had believed in Moses, you would have believed in me, for he had written concerning me. We have already provided a few of the significant messianic prophecies found in the books of Moses, which were esteemed by the apostles to refer to Christ, which ultimately Christ had indeed fulfilled, and which for that reason we can certainly esteem that Moses was writing of Christ, claiming to embrace Moses, and rejecting Christ, one is found to be a hypocrite who really does not believe Moses at all. So Christ concludes and tells them, But if in his writings you do not believe, how shall you believe my words? Rejecting Christ One cannot truly believe what Moses wrote, and one can never believe what Christ had spoken. The concept that there are different so-called Abrahamic religions is a trick of the devil. Judaism is a fraud because it rejects Christ. Islam, or Mohammedanism, is a fraud because it belittles Christ, demoting him from a status other than that of being God incarnate and elevating an illiterate pedophile, and caravan robber to a higher position. Even the so-called New Testament Christian is a fraud, because the authors of the Old Testament were also Christians, as they all wrote in anticipation of Christ. And because the apostles of Christ were Christians, before any New Testament even existed, citing the Old Testament alone to support their faith in Christ. The only cult, and I use that term in a good sense, the only cult which accepts both New Testament and Old in one consistent and harmonious paradigm, of the revelation of truth and the dispensation of Yahweh God the dispensation of Yahweh God is what we refer to as Christian identity we accept Moses, the historical books the wisdom books, the prophets and the gospel of Christ and therefore identity Christians are the authentic Catholic Church as the so-called church fathers originally used the term Catholic. Identity Christians are also the true orthodoxy because we accept and endeavor to adhere to the entire scripture as it was also taught by Paul of Tarsus. But perhaps a better term for what we believe is simply Christianity because that is what the faith of Christ should be as he himself explains it here. This concludes our commentary on the Apostle John, on the Gospel of John through chapter 5. Yahweh willing, we will proceed with chapter 6 in the near future. as ver- as early as next week, but with my recent track record. I hate to make promises because I've broken several, saying I'd get back to my John presentation or commentary next week, and never quite making it, and sometimes taking two or three weeks, and doing other, perhaps easier things in between. Sometimes they don't really turn out to be easier, but I imagine that they may be, and on a short schedule I choose to do them. It doesn't always work out well. We'll be here next week. Our schedule is slowly returning to normal. Slowly. There's still a lot of tasks at hand that I have to consume my time with at the beginning of each week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.